In Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, a character is asked how he went bankrupt. And he says in two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Now this sentence aptly describes how businesses go down. Most people get fixated to the end events and like banks calling in loans and creditors going to court and so on, unpaid salaries. Um, and they look for answers of what went wrong in the end result. The real answers are really way back in the history of that business, sometimes for years. In systems theory, we call this the causal loop and the compensating loop. For example, you might have an organization which has only men in it. So somebody has this really good idea and they say that we must have uh, more women in this organization. We are uh, we a huge gender imbalance. I mean, there's only one gender anyway. So uh, we need to have uh, women in the, in, in the business. And so they start recruiting women. Now, so this is the causal rule. You start recruiting women because you have this good intention uh, that there should be a mix of men and women in the business and all the goodness that brings. At the same time, you will find that a compensating loop starts where people now start resenting having women in the business. The men start resenting having, having women bosses. Uh, men don't like the idea of highly competent women uh, working alongside them or working or giving them orders and instructions. And you will find, um, you know, uh, conversations at the coffee machine and so on where people say, well, you know what, this organization is turning into a kitchen cabinet and uh, I have enough problems when I go home, but now the same problem seems to have been imported here. You will hear all, you will hear this kind of language if somebody is listening, you will hear this kind of uh, language which is now targeting women. So on the one hand, you had this, this uh, good idea of recruiting women uh, to correct the gender imbalance. On the other hand, a uh, opinion that goes counter to that also starts. In system theory, as I said, we call this, we call the first one the causal loop and the second one the compensating loop. Now, the, comp the problem with the compensating loop is that if that isn't addressed early enough, and you address those concerns and you and you make sure that that the compensating loop stops if you don't do that then over a period of time you will find that the compensating loop comes full circle and the initiative you started uh, gets nullified now in my early consulting career i did work for um it, it was very interesting it's exactly the same case uh, for a very famous company, engineering company in South India, uh, which was completely 100% male. Now, this company got a, uh, one of the promoters, <coughs> uh, was, what was, the promoter's daughter came onto the board. And so there was this uh, feeling to say, and quite rightly to say that we must have women in the organization itself. So what they did was that they went ahead and they, uh, hired uh, 50, 50 
young women engineers from the top engineering institutions in India, the IITs, and in those days, what used to be called the REC's, the regional, regional engineering colleges. Now, mercifully, somebody had um, the idea of saying that, look, we can't just take these 50 highly energetic, uh, strong, highly competent women and let them loose in this organization, uh, which is uh, full of men. And this is a traditional South Indian Brahmin organization. So with all that comes with that, uh, we can't just let them loose in there. We need to do some kind of an orientation and so on. Um, and so to make a long story short, four friends of mine and myself, we formed a group and we gave them a proposal for a five day orientation program of basically uh, helping these women integrate into the organization without too much of uh, turmoil. I would, nobody uh, ever imagined that there would be no turmoil, but you know, at least it should be manageable. We did this uh, program in a place called Whitefield in, um, in Bangalore. And uh, from our perspective, the program was very successful. They, they loved it and everything went off fine. Uh, and these women were taken into the organization and at all levels, so they, you know, not the top management level, but all levels. And remember, they had a uh, top management. They, they had the promoter's daughter at the board level to support this initiative. Now, five years later, I thought to myself, let me check and see what is happening in this organization. So at that time, I wasn't even working with them, with them formally, but I had enough friends there to, to find out. I was interested from a professional perspective to say, here was an initiative we did and, you know, how is it doing? And to my horror, um, I found that 90% of those women who were hired had left. And of course, when we did the, uh, you know, bit of our informal investigation, uh, we found this issue of the compensating loop uh, having started and uh, not being detected, not being controlled. And so it went back. Um, there was a huge amount of anti-woman uh, feeling that got generated in the organization as a result of which those women left. Now, that's the theory also of what we know as uh, Seneca's Cliff. Uh, which is that it takes a long time to get to the top of the cliff and then there's a sudden drop to destruction. The problem is that after a certain point is, point is crossed, it's almost impossible um, to reverse that and going off the top is inevitable. Now, that's where I believe and I sincerely hope I'm wrong. Uh, we have reached in several countries that I'm familiar with and globally. In the countries that, that I'm thinking of, uh, it's the apparent, the apparently sudden appearance of majoritarianism and fascist politics, victimizing of a group uh, to project them as a fifth column enemy from within and divert the attention of the masses from all kinds of economic skullduggery uh, to enrich the elite ruling class. This includes the passing of draconian laws to track and monitor and control people in the name of keeping them safe. Um, security is a, is a huge issue, is a hugely promoted issue uh, 
supported by the elites. Uh, COVID was a huge blessing uh, for such leaders who used it instantly uh, to pass new laws to uh, with popular support, um, which couldn't have seen the light of day in a normal period. The problem with all these laws is that once uh, they are in place, they never go away. And the so-called threat uh, itself has nothing to do with it. The threat may go away, but the law remains. Uh, obviously, the media plays a huge role in enabling all of this. And thanks to a gullible population, which is addicted to screens, uh, which can't differentiate between the truth and concoction, and they are willing to follow the Pied Piper uh, over the top of the cliff. And so, therefore, the rest is easy. But when you stop for a bit and look back at history, you will find plenty of science about where society was headed for a long time. Uh, you will find science not in cataclysmic events in the high places, but in, for example, daily dinner table conversations at home. Uh, in an, you will find evidence in unintentional, maybe even unconscious messages to children in choices about who to be friends with and who to invite home and who is considered safe uh, and respectable and otherwise. Um, I can never stop talking about this. I remember uh, a little, um, maybe one minute video clip of uh, this white lady and her little daughter who must be two years old, Max. From the accent, she seems to be Australian. I'm saying this for specific reasons, which, which I will come to in a second. The conversation goes as follows. The mother says to the little daughter, who ate the cookies? And the daughter says, not me. So the mother says, are you telling me that somebody entered the house and they did not steal the TV and they did not steal the computers and they did not steal anything but they went into the cookie jar and they ate the cookies. She said, yes, this little one. She says, yes. And then on her own, she says, it was a black man. Now, I've been to Australia multiple times. And believe me, at least where I went, and I went to Brisbane, I went to Perth, I went to Melbourne, uh, I went to Sydney. You have to go hunting to find a black man. This two-year-old girl, on her own, the moment the topic is about stealing and breaking in and so on, on her own, she volunteers and says, it was a black man. Now, and the mother has a big laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Now, where does she get that from? Dumb question, right? This is the part, this is the issue. The issue is, that this is where uh, these kinds of uh, philosophies and these kinds of uh, negative ideologies, um, they take birth. And literally, it comes, you, 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 you drink it in with your mother's milk. It's in the nurseries. It's in dinner table conversations. It is in the, in the homes. You will find signs of this in conversations uh, about how certain people are referred to. Now you will find also 
shines most powerfully in jokes and humor, which highlights prejudice long before it is seen in public. A progression of that is when, when target groups start to mock themselves. Stand-up comedy is an early warning signal for those who can see. You will also see evidence of this in the insular, chauvinistic, uniculture nature of social gatherings where the one who doesn't fit is unwelcome. You will find this in apologetic suffixes to statements like, oh, I'm not saying they are all like this, they. Uh, some of my best friends are Jews. Some of my best friends are Muslims. Some of my best friends are Africans or African-Americans or Hispanics or whatnot, right? It's the, it's the other group, the othering of it. And you also hear statements like, not all of them are, and then there's a, something negative. But all those negative people are from this faith or from this race or from this nationality or whatever. From here on, it goes to being normalized in public discourse by national leaders. And then we are well and truly on the slope. I don't think I need to give examples of how public figures and public leaders in the recent past have been routinely demonizing and maligning certain groups and people so that it's become now normalized. The question to ask is not, how was I so blind that I didn't see what was happening early enough to stop it, thinking about the past, but to ask today, what is happening right now that I need to notice and stop so that we don't have a catastrophe to deal with a decade later? To understand why this is happening, again, let me tell you what I call the parable of the boiled frog. How is it that the compensating loop doesn't get caught in time and uh, so the thing gets, uh, so, so that the negativity is, uh, is, is uh, you know, broken in time. I call this the, the parable of the boiled frog. Imagine this, don't do it. Cruelty to dumb animals is not permissible. If you take a nice big healthy frog and put it into a pot of hot water, the frog will immediately jump out, instantly. But if you take the same frog and put it into a pot of water at room temperature and leave it there, let the frog get comfortable with that, maybe give it some frog food. <clears throat> and once the frog is <clears throat> comfortable in the water, floating on the top, croaking, light a small fire under the pot and gently heat the pot. And slowly, the pot gets hot, the water gets warmer and warmer and warmer. But frogs, uh, being cold-blooded animals, the body temperature adjusts to that, and the frog is unaware <clears throat> that the water is getting hot until it gets to a point now <clears throat> when the water is dangerously hot. But by now, the frog is flaccid and lethargic 
and practically paralyzed. And so it cannot escape, even though it knows that this is death. And then we got the frog on the plate, salt and pepper, dash of lime, eat it. Jokes apart, this is not about frogs. This is the story of a lot of people, the story of their lives. They live unaware of the water heating up until it is too late. As somebody said, because we looked away from that work, and he's talking about, for example, how infrastructure deteriorates over time, dams and bridges and roads and so on, gradually it deteriorates over time. So he says, because we looked away from that work, we didn't notice that in time. We are now forced to look on in horror when the final collapse happens. <clears throat> in my 67 years to date and 40 years in consulting, coaching, mentoring, advising individuals, organizations, and governments on matters related to leadership and human relations, the parable of the boiled frog appears to come true far more than I would have thought possible, especially given the fact that I am talking to highly educated, intelligent people. But true it is, believe me, whether we like it or not, extremely painful and deeply tragic because it's totally avoidable. The solution is to constantly measure everything that is of value to you. The key word is constantly. In the words of Michael Harry of Motorola, the co-developer of Six Sigma methodology to measure quality, he said, if you want to see what people value, see what they measure. I'm using Six Sigma, especially because it takes measurement to a different level. To illustrate, if you have a process that is 99% right, most people will be satisfied with that. But 99% right is 10,000 mistakes per million. Six Sigma is 3.4 mistakes per million. Believe me, when you are flying at 30,000 feet, you don't want to know that the engines of your plane were built in a factory that worked on 99% right. The benefit of frequent measurement and measuring small changes is that corrections are easier and less painful to make. You can take this and apply it in practically everywhere. In marriages, in raising children, obviously in corporate organizations, commercial organizations, in businesses. You can take it and apply it in the voluntary work that we do, uh, social work, in voluntary organizations, everywhere. I've seen so many people, for example, uh, in society, uh, you know, who behave in toxic ways. And truly, you want to, you, you wonder why, what happened to these people. For example, one of my, uh, one of the things that I see very often and, uh, uh, again, totally, totally avoidable is, uh, I specialize in consulting with family businesses. And sometimes I see, uh, family businesses 
siblings at each other's throats, uh, breaking up in an extremely acrimonious way um, with the not just the business breaking up, but the family breaking up, right? Um, and you think to us, sometimes, if you, I mean, I don't, but I know this, the, the, the theory behind it, but people might look at that and say, what happened here? I mean, here was this business, uh, as long as the founder was there, the father was there, uh, everything was going so smoothly. And as soon as the old man dies, these uh, the sons are at each other's throats. And, you know, what happened? Something went wrong drastically. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Let me give you an example. Go back 40 years. Those two sons, or three sons or whatever, or daughters, they were little children in the nursery. So here you have a two-year-old and a three-year-old and the three-year-old is holding on to a toy and the two-year-old is screaming his guts out. And what does the parent say? The parent says, don't worry, I'll get you your own. Fast forward 40 years. That's exactly what you see happening, except the location has changed from the nursery to the courtroom. From the nursery to the courtroom. Many marriages break up, not because of one event, but because of many small things, which you would not even call events, but which pile up until the proverbial Camel's back breaks. Likewise, evil people. Name the individual of your choice. And remember that every evil person that walks the earth today was a baby, was a toddler, was an adolescent before he or she became an adult. Sometimes I think the best marriage gift to give somebody is a jumbo box of condoms. And tell them that until you are sure of being able to raise a child that is worthy of walking on the earth, use these. It's really, it would be salutary to think of all that happened during that time when this evil creature was a baby or was a toddler and an adolescent. And all that could have been done to ensure that the adult would be an ethical, moral, responsible, compassionate, kind person. But that was not done. That's not too much to ask, is it? Sadly, that is not done. And the rest of the world has to live with the result of this lazy or absent parenting. <clears throat> I want to say to you that if I ask people sometimes in my coaching practice, people talk about their dreams of career advancement and I want to do this and I dream about that. But when I ask them, what book are you reading now? There's no answer. My usual answer is, oh, you know what? I'm so busy. There's no time to read. I ask them, what course did you attend during your vacation? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Vacation, course, are you insane? I say to myself silently, and wait until the next downsizing of your company 
and then you will know who was insane. It's a, it is the daily small improvements to yourself that make major impacts in life. The law of entropy fits like a glove. You must run to stay in the same place and you must run like your tail is on fire to progress. If you don't invest in your growth, you won't grow. But the market grows. The customer's needs grow. Technology grows. Demands grows. Demands grow. Everything around you grows. And one day you discover that you don't fit any longer. Worse, your employer discovers that. Your customers discover that. Your clients discover that. And you become the proud owner of a big slip. Remember, that didn't happen then. Your pink slip was written the first time you passed up an opportunity to learn. Your pink slip was only sent to you the day you received it. What is sad is not the pink slip, but that it was you who wrote it for yourself. I have held myself to this value of constant self-improvement and constant measurement. To the extent that every five years or so, roughly, I do a 360 appraisal of myself. And I say I do, I don't do it myself. I have a friend of mine who runs a company that runs. It's called Potentia. And Harish Raichandani is his name. So you can look him up and hire him. He does a brilliant job. Potentia Harish Raichandani from Hyderabad. And they do a 360 appraisal. I don't want to take your time explaining to you what a 360 appraisal is, but believe me, it literally means that. It means that they ask everyone 360 about you, how they experience you in different aspects of their lives because these are people, some are clients, some are family, some are friends, some are you know, <laughs> enemies maybe. And then they compile all, the, all of that and give it to you. It is exemplary. It is salutary. I want to close with this to say to you that <clears throat> every minute that you spend thinking, reading, reflecting, recording. In short, everything you do that you were not pressured to do, but you did because you considered it to be, considered it to be important for your development, adds up. The day when the scale tips in your favor may surprise you and others, but there's nothing surprising at all in it. Every grain goes towards reaching the critical weight that is needed to tip the scale. All power to you if you added the grains. The time to wake up and start adding grains is now. Success is not magic. Success is not a miracle. Success is the result of systematic daily effort.